welcome to the Rihanna for President episode of Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week. I'm Felix Salmon of Axios. I'm here with Emily Peck, also of Axios. Hello, hello. I'm here with Elizabeth Spires. Hello. I feel like with the title of this show, I've already given away one of the punchlines in the show, which is we're going to start by talking about the leadership vacuum at the World Bank. David Malpass has stepped down. We're going to talk about who could possibly replace him. And then we're going to talk about something completely different, which is the derailment in Ohio. But then we're going to talk about ads and the value of advertising and the value of publicity. And we're somehow going to talk about Rihanna and the Super Bowl. And we are going to bring it full circle and come to the genius idea that Rihanna should be the next um, president of the World Bank, which would be awesome, I think. It's all coming up on Slate Money. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Why don't we start by talking about the big global money news that Felix and his his ilk really care about, and that is who will run the World Bank? I, I've kind of lost track of how many World Bank successions we've had here on Slate Money over the years, but they're always fun. They're always fun to handicap. It's never who you think it's going to be, although David Malpass was, was always kind of the front runner, I guess. In any case, Donald Trump did end up nominating David Malpass. He did wind up getting voted in by all of the countries of the world, even though no, no one particularly liked him. But it was understood that, you know, the American nominee always gets it. And so he got it. And then this week, the big news is he resigned. And the first weird thing is, why did he resign? You know, was he quietly pushed out by the Biden administration, which clearly never was much of a fan of his, or was it actually his decision? I guess ultimately it doesn't really matter. The fact is there's a really big, important job that has now opened up. And in theory, it's open to anyone on the planet. But if you look at history, it's only open to Americans. Right. And I guess we should say why the White House didn't like David Malpass. It wasn't just because he was a Trump appointee. It was because he had not, he had said he didn't believe in climate change, basically. There was this absolute train wreck of an interview last September where the interviewer, and I'm trying to remember who it was. I can't remember. Where the, where the interviewer like threw up this incredible softball about like, you know, so something, something, you know, can, can we at least just agree on the basics? Like there is 
anthropogenic climate change and it's bad and we need to do what we can to stop it. And he basically refused to admit that there was any kind of human caused global warming at all. And the entire world went up in arms. Al Gore called for his, you know, immediate resignation. Um, and then somehow he clung on and survived that. And he walked the comments back just enough to cling on to his position. Um, part of the problem was that it was kind of understood that if the U.S. fired him, which it, they do have the ability to do, then maybe the rest of the world wouldn't necessarily just go along with whoever the U.S. nominee was for the replacement because there is a vote and the rest of the world does need to vote. And if they vote for someone else rather than the U.S. nominee, then that other person gets it. That's never happened, but theoretically that could happen. Now that he's resigned, it does seem much clearer that it's up to Treasury and the White House to nominate a successor. And I would be absolutely astonished if that person, whoever it is, doesn't wind up getting the job. So really, yeah, whoever Joe Biden and Janet Yellen think, you know, want want to be the next World Bank president will be the next World Bank president. So how much how much pressure do you think they are under to nominate somebody who's been very vocal about climate change specifically and, and what the World Bank's role is in fixing it? I think that would be like they would love to do that, right? They would love to be able to signal that this is the big existential issue of our time and that this is the thing that the World Bank should really be concentrating on above everything else, right? So when Obama nominated Jim Yong Kim to be the World Bank president, that was, he was the co-founder of Partners in Health and that was an indication of, you know, we are going to move away from having financiers and bankers running the World Bank to having someone who really cares about health and poverty and, you know, well-being instead. And I think that maybe this is the opportunity for the Biden administration to say the number one priority is climate change and we want a real, someone who's really going to push the green agenda in this position. And if they did do that, then I think the rest of the world would happily go along with that nomination. Um, so then the question arises, you know, if you want to do that, who do you nominate? And one of the problems is that the obvious candidates would be, you know, old white men. It would be John Kerry. It would be Al Gore. You know, who are the, you know, younger American women of color who would credibly be leaders on that front? It's an interesting question. Yeah, I think it, it probably just depends on whether they make it a priority to recruit from NGO land versus uh, the private sector and looking at, you know, per what you just said, um, because the NGO leaders are, I, I think, far more diverse than the people that they would pluck out of the private sector. No. So, so Raj Shah is a name that comes up quite a lot, right? And he runs the Rockefellers Foundation. Um, he would definitely be on any shortlist, I think. But by the same token, again, there is a lot of talk about Biden really wanting to nominate a woman. The World Bank has never been run by a woman, and that would be pretty awesome too. What is what is the World Bank going to do about climate change, really? So the World Bank mobilizes 
hundreds of billions of dollars to, to the countries which are ultimately going to either just massively increase their carbon emissions as they industrialize or aren't. You know, mm. th- like a lot of the future trajectory of carbon emissions is a function of big, big questions like how much is India going to be polluting? How much is China going to be polluting? Well, China's not really, you know, the World Bank has very little control over China. But certainly Africa as a continent, you know, is the fastest growing continent in the world by far in terms of population. And the per capita emissions are growing. And mm. how is the World Bank going to square that circle of keeping economic growth, keeping the you know, poverty rate going down rather than up, while at the same time without having carbon emissions going out of control. That is like of all of the institutions in the world, probably the World Bank is best place to be able to do that. Whether it can, I don't know. But like, if anyone can, it can. It's interesting to me too, because in the US, I feel like the administration, there was an effort to sort of put a climate lens on policymaking. Like, for a while, it seemed like the Federal Reserve was going to go for it in that direction, but then had to walk that back. Well, they didn't walk it back so much as, you know, they ran straight into COVID. And then suddenly COVID overwhelmed mm. all of their other considerations. But certainly until COVID hit, they were leaning in that direction. The Bank of England was really taking a lead in terms of green finance and that kind of thing. So I think there is a broad international consensus that big you know international financial institutions can and should take a lead on this issue you know as best they can i guess what i was driving at is there's international consensus and yeah maybe covid drove it off track a little and and this is a sign of getting back to that but in the us itself and the us right it's a big contributor to climate change itself making these kinds of moves gets a lot of pushback politically as you know woke and stuff and i think Part of the reason the Federal Reserve recently said it it wasn't going to do as much around climate as people had thought was because of that, right? I mean, the, the, the good news, if you want to think about it this way, is that the World Bank has zero influence over the United States, right? The World Bank president is not going to start lecturing the U.S. on American climate emissions Mm -hmm. or carbon emissions i should say um so if the americans put someone in who cares about carbon emissions and is trying to put the rest of the world and specifically the developing world onto a more sustainable trajectory i i don't know how many you know texas oil barons are going to complain about that maybe Mm. i mean there's always you know a few but the Federal Reserve is is directly worried about the American economy and inter- intervenes very aggressively in the American economy, as we've seen. The World Bank doesn't, so it's less of a conflict there. Yeah, and it's a, I guess it's a way for the White House to be, I'm sorry to say this word, I don't know what's come over me. It's a way for the White House to be woke about climate <laughs> with little political blowback because people probably don't care as much of about the World Bank in the U.S. as like Felix does. Well, I also think, you know, climate change uh, in a really longitudinal way has become more widely accepted even on a bipartisan basis. And so there, there are Republicans who are trying to roll that back and turn it back into an issue of, of wokeness or lefty overreach. But I, I just don't think that it's actually getting any traction. And when you, mm-hmm. when you look at surveys of, you know, what the sort of baseline Republican thinks, they might think that, you know, we're doing too much to uh, 
correct climate change that's not business friendly, but the level of denial that it actually exists has gone down over time. I think if you look at the world, which is really the constituents we were talking about here, the the sort of right-wing climate denialism in America is such an outlier that this is not going to influence the presidency of the World Bank, right? Like, right-wing climate denialism basically doesn't exist anywhere in the world um, beyond America. Mm-hmm. And even in America, it's those people don't care about who the president of the World Bank is. And yeah, so, you know, we have this global consensus. And that I guess the reason I'm, I'm talking about this is because, you know, what then happens if Biden nominates someone like Samantha Power to be the president of the World Bank, right? She's qualified in many ways, and she understands the, you know, issues facing the developing world, but she's not known as any kind of climate warrior, um, why don't you run through, or Elizabeth, whoever, run through the possibilities for who's going to get the nomination and, and and tell us your bets? It's so, I mean, this one's really, really tough. I, I can't really handicap it. You know, I think a lot of the names that would bubble up in the past um, are now just too old. People like Mike Bloomberg and Hillary Clinton just, you know, they've they've aged out of contention at this point. But who's the sort of next generation of people who are coming into contention? Maybe Raj Shah, um, Samantha Power for sure. So Raj Shah, we talked about, he's he's the head of the Rockefeller Foundation. Samantha Power is, is a, you know, long-standing, like, State Department and academic international relations type. I don't know, who do you guys... Who 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 do you guys see as being on the list among the Americans? Among like, if you open it up to non-Americans, then there's a vast bench of like of, of highly qualified people who could do it. I just don't see the I just don't see the Biden administration doing that. We're we're moving in the the current geopolitical climate internationally. Just nothing about it says to me that the Americans are going to give up that plum position. Why not Al Gore? Well. He's you the know, only I mean, one I could think of. I'm just <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he's getting on a bit I mean, he's now, not a woman. Also, he's not a woman. He's a little bit of a blowhard. You know, like, maybe, you know, I'm sure he would jump at the chance. It doesn't feel like a forward-thinking, you know, it feels like a clunky choice. Mm. But maybe it could be, you know? Elizabeth, you got anyone? I have no idea. I feel like uh, the, the administration is probably going to lean toward finding somebody who comes more out of a policy realm than a finance realm, uh, specifically because of the optics of Malpass. Yeah, it's not going to. I very much doubt it'll be a banker. You know, I, I'm, I'm sure that Jamie Dimon would love it, right? But like, I, I just, there's, I just cannot imagine a world, politically speaking, where. Joe Biden rewards Jamie Dimon with this plum job because, you know, why would he? I have an idea that won't, isn't good, but I'll throw it out there. <laughs> Go on. <laughs> Elon Musk. <laughs> <laughs> oh, genius. Instead of just being a chaos monkey inside of Twitter, yeah. I could make him a chaos monkey you, you inside thought- of you thought David Malpass was bad. You just wait until we put Elon in show. What? I mean, he's into the environment, I think, because of the car thing. People say he likes the environment. It gets him out of the U.S. It gets him out of 
Twitter, maybe, somehow. It gets him off my plate, is what I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> we wouldn't have to talk about him anymore if he was yeah, the world he'd, he'd, he'd do it, right? Imagine? He'd do it, because his ego is that big. He's like, sure, I can do this, no problem. And that's that. It solves, it's kind of like, a, what do they call it? A win-win, triple bottom line, something? He's African. Right, but but he's 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 ours now. Exactly. He he gets a bit like Jim Kim, you know. He was he was he was an American, but he was born in Korea. Now yeah. we can have an American who's born in Africa. He's he's but a global. Yeah, no. no, no, just a joke, I guess. Well, if anyone has any idea who's going to be the next World Bank president, email us. And I think I think the Americans will nominate someone pretty quickly. I feel like they've been gaming out this scenario for months now, and they probably have a pretty good idea who they want. And it will probably be like no one we've met named and someone out of left field, a bit like it was under, you know, with Obama. Okay, after the ads, we should definitely, definitely talk about the airborne toxic event in Ohio coming up after this break. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Hello, I'm Imi Harper. On the slow newscast from Tortoise, I tell the story of how a Hong Kong billionaire was silenced. I got bombs thrown into my house. I got people came here, ransacked my computer. And I, I got people threatening me. I got this and that, but I'm safe. And what it reveals about the freedoms Hong Kong no longer enjoys. Listen to Hong Kong's rebel billionaire on the slow newscast, wherever you get your podcasts. Emily. Felix. There was an, there was a freight train derailment in Ohio and it caused an airborne toxic event. Um so what does this tell us about the state of American infrastructure and railways in particular? Um I think it tells us a lot about the railways in particular, most of which I think a lot of people already knew because the freight rails were in the headlines last year because of their labor dispute, but they have been cutting costs and cutting costs and cutting staff and cutting staff for years, you know, to boost their profits. And they have been lengthening the trains. There are the trains right now, I think on average are like a mile, 1.2 miles long and they're staffed by not that many people. And I should say, we don't know yet exactly what caused this particular derailment and no one died. And, and we don't know the cause, but I I can say that the freight rails and the companies that own them are very focused on profits. They don't have a lot of people staffing the trains. So that's sort of like all happening in the backdrop. And it kind of and and meanwhile, these trains are carting the most toxic, dangerous stuff that is used in our supply chain. Like um, in this case, it was vinyl chloride, which is an industrial chemical used to make plastic that is causes cancer and is very toxic. And there was another 
chemical release that was like used as a weapon in World War One or something. And people put this stuff on the trains because to put them on truck to put it on trucks would be even worse, even more dangerous, right? Because driving on the highways is even more dangerous. And and this one, they actually they they set it on fire deliberately, right? Yes, they were worried um, if they didn't do that, it would be even worse. There'd be an explosion that would be even worse. So yeah, they set on fire deliberately. The neighboring town was evacuated, and then residents were told they could come back. And then they came back, they were like, uh, my dog is dying, and my eyes are burning, and things like that. And uh, so far, I think the EPA has said it's it's safe, but it doesn't seem like anyone really believes the EPA. Those of us who lived in, in New York City during... 9-11 or immediately after 9-11 have long since learned not to trust reflexive government announcements that, oh, you can taste it, you can smell it, it's obviously toxic, but it's perfectly safe. It's fine. It's fine. <laughs> it's, it's the equivalent of a chemical weapons attack in the middle of Ohio. And with, with all the problems that chemical weapons would have, which is that they contaminate the environment and they're difficult to clean up and you can't really contain them and you know, I think people intuitively understand that. So when the EPA says, oh, it's fine now, you can come back. Like n Nobody with more than three brain cells buys it. It seems to me that on, on one level, there is no such thing as a perfectly safe transportation system of anything, right? Like the, you can't you can't create a system where nothing ever goes wrong. That's statistically impossible. So by the same token, there does seem to have been a diminution, I guess, of controls that were in place to try and prevent this kind of thing. And it seems possible, likely, colorable, I don't know what, what word you'd use, that, you know, that, that some kind of form of investment or just having more people working on preventing this kind of thing might have prevented this kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, again, we don't know exactly yet what caused this kind of, this thing, but we know that derailments aren't that uncommon. We know that the the rails have been fighting against safety, some safety regulations for years and years and looking to minimize staff. We know that these trains are over a mile long and this train in particular, Vice has a good story about how it was, it's the 32N line, but they called it the 32 Nasty. And um, apparently, according to Vice's reporting, the heaviest um, cars of the train were in the back. So, I mean, you can just think of it intuitively when you break and all the heavy stuff is behind you, it's not as safe, right? If you got like bowling balls in the back seat, I like to bring up bowling balls from time to time, they'll like <laughs> <laughs> flying at you. Um, in other industries, when bad stuff happens, safety gets tightened up. Like I think about airplanes and they don't have a zero record, obviously, but they, they're pretty good on safety because people are really scared of falling out of the sky and there's a lot of regulations around air, airline safety. But right? I think that's that's true because they're, they're consumer-facing industries and th this is really yes, you know, business to business. So the average mm -hmm. consumer has no concept of how relatively safe or unsafe this is. And it's not a thing that you would walk through the world thinking about or worrying about, as a matter of course. There is a culture of safety in the airline industry, and very specifically, there is a culture of using accidents and near misses as opportunities to learn more about the system as a whole and mm -hmm. trying to make the system as a whole 
as safe as it can possibly be. And the aerospace industry is extremely good whenever there's a crash or a near miss of investigating what happened and not pointing fingers and not assigning blame and instead saying, like, how do we improve the whole system so that this kind of thing doesn't happen again? And what I'm seeing in the aftermath of what happened in Ohio is a lot of pretty sort of knee-jerk, let's start blaming Norfolk Southern or let's start, you know, assigning blame and like whose fault is this and who can we blame for this and who can we sue for this? And it's in that kind of a system, you know, companies wind up going on the defensive. They wind up not opening up quite so much about what happened and and what might have gone wrong. And it's harder to have a system where people feel comfortable coming forwards and saying like, actually, we can make it safer if we do this or we do that. And I, I think that the aerospace industry as an industry is really kind of best practice when it comes to this kind of thing. Um, one of the problems with the 737 MAX debacle was that that culture was getting weaker and weaker within Boeing. And that mm -hmm. was one of the big problems there. But broadly in the industry, it still remains in place. And I don't get the feeling that the railroad industry has bought into that kind of culture. I can give you an anecdote. I was talking to a union guy this week, and he was saying in the airline industry, there's a hotline where workers can call in anonymously, report safety issues, and the airlines have promised like they're not going to try and figure out who people are or retaliate or whatever. And that effort has kind of been, according to this guy, blocked by the freight rail companies. They won't promise no retaliation. <laughs> so it sounded like to me, from what this fellow was telling me, that there's discouraging of people reporting problems. And the Vice story also is they've done some reporting that shows something similar where their workers are kind of discouraged from reporting concerns or about safety issues. And it's interesting if you go back to like the history of the rails in the United States, like really way back when the companies used to hire workers, say from China, you know, back in the day, like when the railways, what are they called? When the tracks were first being laid down, they were like paying Chinese workers barely anything and they were dying at really high rates and these companies i mean this was obviously a long centuries ago were like what ups you know and i feel like culture echoes also i will also note that i was reading some reporting um where they said norfolk southern has said it will donate money to residents of the town making it sound like they're doing charity like what is that I mean, they did an accident. They're not donating money. They're, like, paying people for the hardship that they've caused, right? Yeah, and it worked out to, like, $5 per person, <laughs> which if you, you know, end up with cancer, that's not really very helpful. Yeah, I, you know, I, I do still think, and you made this point earlier, Emily, that rail is by far the, the greenest and most efficient and safest way of transporting dangerous shit that like yeah. exists you know and we have to transport dangerous material somehow um it's already in that sort of top position it's the first best solution to that problem and in a weird way i think what's happened is that the railroads have, uh, have rested on their laurels there right they're like we have no competition you know no one's going to start moving this stuff by truck. You know, you have nuclear waste. It's going to be moved by train. Yeah. And 
you know, it's, it's like a captive set of buyers. You know, we have a we have a monopoly on providing these services, um, and that makes them a little bit sort of complacent. And we probably just need a regulator with teeth. But that's true in many many parts of the U.S. US economy. Yes. We'll be right back after an ad. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. Tell us about weird crappy ads. There's an article over the weekend in the New York Times with the question mark headline, why are you seeing so many bad digital ads now? Which anecdotally, I I agree. I am seeing a lot of bad digital ads now, especially on Twitter, but in also everywhere else. In your view, what, what constitutes a bad ad? Because it's mistargeted or it looks like it looks terrible. It's for some like weird product. Like there's one I was seeing for a while that looked like... This like, you remember in grade school, there'd be like this big silk parachute thing and you'd all sit in a big circle and you'd like lift it up and go underneath it. Yep. Okay, good. Thanks, Elizabeth. (laughs) This product was like that smaller and you, the idea was you put all your makeup in it and then you like tighten it. I've seen this ad. Yeah. It's so dumb. It's just (laughs) junky crap. You know what I mean? It's like infomercials have infiltrated all of it, all of the ad space in the digital sphere in, in more places than you would typically see them. Like sometimes you go to junkie sites and see them, but now it's everywhere. It's Twitter, it's Facebook, it's, I don't know, not Axios. Instagram. Instagram. Yeah, and this is just a, this is a function of the surveillance capitalism model where if you have any data about the user at all, it makes it possible for advertisers to very cheaply target you. I I feel like it's the opposite of that, actually, Elizabeth. That what we're seeing is, the the prices of advertising, you know, in the world of a duopoly where basically all ads are sold by either Google or Facebook, are going up, and it's 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 now become very expensive to target people. I, I'm not seeing that at all, and and we do some targeting in my one of my other day jobs. When in fact we see it getting cheaper. So so the co- so the CPMs are coming down. Yeah, for for that kind of marketing, and I I do think it's a very different market from. For instance, you know, a full-page glossy ad in a magazine. Like these are these are wildly different economies, and it's still relatively cheap to do very targeted advertising online cheaply. So just just to be clear, when you say relatively relatively, so just to be clear, when you say relatively cheap, you mean relative to what? Well, a few cents on the dollar relative to what what we would consider normal display advertising, where a brand goes in and says. 
I want these spots on the page and here's some custom creative uh, for your site. And by creative, I mean, you know, whatever the ad looks like, whether it's video or static or anything like that. The stuff that you're seeing that Emily's talking about is, is completely algorithmically driven. And uh, you buy those things through ad networks where you're buying at scale, but you're also targeting specific demographics. And because you're not really controlling, you know, where the ads end up or to some extent who they're ending up in front of, you're, you know, you're paying less for them and, and they tend to be less effective. Uh, users don't recall them as much. The funny thing is they recall them more if you mistarget an ad. This is why Emily mm. remembers the, the make a bag ad because she's thinking like, why, why am I getting this? So there, there's also some irony to it. The worse the targeting is, the more likely you're, you are to have ad recall for those things. But you're saying that in terms of CPMs, like the, 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 the cost of buying an ad, that programmatic is a small fraction of if I just buy it directly? Yes. Interesting. Way cheaper to do programmatic in, in almost every case. There are probably some exceptions when you get to luxury goods and things like that, but for these, especially for these infomercial type products that Emily's talking about. Mm. So um, the Times points to a few reasons. One is that um, marketing budgets are smaller this year. So like the big established advertisers have pulled back and prices have softened, as Elizabeth is saying. And, you know, where the the good guys have pulled back, the crummy ads are like flooding in um, is one reason. Also, I mean, with Twitter, sort of a specific case where I think advertisers got scared off by future World Bank president Elon Musk. And also the Times piece mentions something we've talked about a, a bit, which is that it's harder now for for targeting to happen because of the changes Apple's made to uh, its privacy controls. So it's like a, a combo of reasons, but it's making the user experience online really bad. So my question is, where where are the brand advertisers advertising? If you think of advertising as basically being two different things, you have like the glossy brand ads that make you want to think lovely things about the brand um what 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 they like, like to call top of the funnel stuff versus the sort of crappy junk mail that just makes you want to click and buy something on the other end there's always been both in in the ad world you know before the internet you know you'd have glossy ads in vogue magazine and you'd have junk mail literally coming through your mailbox um on the internet they kind of coexist uneasily alongside each other but if this is true that um the the crappy junk maily kind of ads are taking over more and more of the internet where are the brand advertisers because they're not going back to vogue they're not like suddenly moving all of their ad budgets back to glossy magazines where are they I mean, I think the big brands didn't fully pull out of Vogue. You know, they, they might have cut budgets a little bit, but you're still seeing ads in the, the usual places that you would. I think the difference is for this, this sort of lower end targeted advertising, people use that really need direct conversions. They need you to, to be able to demonstrate internally that you go off and buy something based on this ad. Right. But, but, but Elizabeth, what I'm saying is what's changed? You know, like, that's always been the case. Why Why is it feeling worse now? Well, I think, you know, the biggest thing is just that programmatic is so much easier, not just for, you know, ad buyers, but also for publishers. 
you know, if you've ever worked on the ad side of a media company, you know how much care and feeding goes into managing a single advertiser on an account. And I've seen a lot of publishers just move into programmatic more just because that, you know, you don't have to chase people down for money. You don't have 90 days between serving an ad and getting paid. You know, there's somebody with a corporate credit card on the other side that's just, you know, everything's automated. And that's huge. That's that's especially when you talk, you're thinking about smaller, smaller publishers and companies that just are not going to have the same ad sales and account management infrastructure. I think that's part of what's driving programmatic adoption because it's easier to scale. So if that's right, if what you're saying is right and the amount of programmatic ad buying is going up and the and part of the reason for what Emily's talking about is just that we have more programmatic in general, then I go back to my original question, which is like, if there's more programmatic, that means there's less of the carefully bought and placed and art directed brand advertising. And if there's less of that online, then where's it moving? Or is it like, is it all just, maybe it's all just moving to newsletters, podcasts? I have no idea. I, I think some of it is they're, they're sort of redefining what they consider, big brands are redefining what they consider brand awareness. Yeah. So, for example, you know, if you have a, a, a brand that has a really just kind of granularly branded social media presence on Twitter or TikTok or something, and it seems to be doing something a little bit different than what the, the big national mainstream advertising looks like, I think the way that they think about it is this is just, you know, you're fragmenting your brand identity a little bit in order to capture, you know, different audiences. I'm not sure that it's the case that people are really pulling back on marketing budgets altogether. They're just allocating them differently into different media. Yeah. So I'm just saying, like, that's that's my question. If they're allocating them different differently and they're moving it away from the web, where are they allocating it to what's if that if the web is the loser and the web in ex, the consumer web experience is the loser what's the gainer it's too broad to say the web is the loser it's like this specific kind of web advertising maybe is the loser but companies have gotten more sophisticated just like elizabeth said in how they market themselves both online and in the real world and it's not always going to be in an ad like you yourself felix have talked about you know companies have editor-in-chiefs now companies put out their own newsletters now their own podcasts now they do their own kind of stealth content marketing that you a lot of people aren't even aware of like in finance you know companies are spending marketing dollars on things like uh, personal finance sites that you think are non-biased where they're you know spending money to get themselves ranked higher as like a great fintech or a bank or something you know and not even aware of that stuff like there's all kinds of ways you can deploy your online marketing budget that isn't just ads that are can be effective. And then at the high end, you know, we always have the Super Bowl. There will always be the Super Bowl. <laughs> Eventually there will be like, you know, it's amazing how Super Bowl ad spots only ever go up in price, even as the number of people watching the Super Bowl doesn't go up at all. Because it is the only mass event that a brand can use to introduce itself to a hundred million people like there's no other way you can do it the only event i can think of where the ads are part of the entertainment yeah like i know people who my seven-year-old wanted to watch just for the ads yeah does not care about football he just wanted to see the ads did he have an ad did he like the ads were the ads good this year 
he, he gave it a mixed review. He, he asked him to give Ranky Jad like one to five, which he got bored with very quickly, but he was fun for, you know, five minutes. So I liked Ben Affleck working at the Dunkin' Donuts myself. I don't yes. think he should have. that For those who didn't watch, Ben Affleck worked the, the drive-through window at the Dunkin' Donuts, and it's funny. And then J-Lo comes up and she's like, is this what you do all day? And then he leaves, which many said was not good. You should stay at your work. <laughs> yeah stay stay at your work duncan employees don't run off with j-lo if j-lo pulls up in a drive-thru and offers offers you you know the opportunity to drive off with her into the sunset say no and keep on serving that coffee Wait, here's a question and for felix and elizabeth since you guys are consumers of online content if the ads are terrible does that turn you off from the content itself like how much are you willing to put up with like, I can't read a story where there's, like, one of those images of, like, someone popping a pimple, for example. Like, I will just stop. That's it. I'm, I'm out. Like, I don't want to see anything about earwax. You know what I mean? Like, I have a limit. There are certain websites which I just reflexively click on that read of you in Safari because it, they're unreadable Smart. without Smart. it. You know, The Hill or The Daily Mail or something like that. It's just like The Daily News. You just cannot read those pages. They're so encrusted with ads. And so I'll just try and click out there was a point where um bloomberg stories became just completely unreadable because of auto playing videos everywhere and i'm like okay i'm going to stop trying even trying to read this story because i cannot stop it making sounds at me and it was ridiculous but yeah so it's a, a bad ad experience really does degrade the whole website significantly yeah, it's worse, though, to have a bad user experience where the page is loaded with ads and you can't read what you're trying to read. Or, or it's Felix mentions, you know, autoplay or something, which is terrible if you're sitting, and maybe this is less of an issue now, but if you're sitting in open plan office pre-COVID and you have something that suddenly starts screaming at everyone around you. Um, and that, that kind of thing, I, I think, is qualitatively different than, you know, do these ads suck generally and would that turn you <laughs> off from the content i don't think the ad sucking really turns me off but if if the the way the page is designed and the ad placements make it impossible for me to get to what i want to then yeah i won't i, I will consciously make an effort to avoid but they're related right like in general the places with lots of annoying pop-up ad type things are also the places with the crappiest ads. Sometimes I, I do think, but there, there was uh, when, when I have worked on the, the ad side of digital or publishing side, one thing, and I, I think publishers are better about this now. If you had a really high end luxury advertiser, they would come in and ask for some insane ad spot that did something super weird and was very intrusive and took up like half the page. And so when you saw those spots, it would be like Jaguar. It wouldn't be like, a, you know, a, a weird programmatic brand or, or, you know, the kind of thing Emily was talking about, the parachute thing you put your makeup in. My, my, my pet peeve is, I have to say, the house ads more than any advertiser. Like, you can have the worst makeup bag in the world and it's annoying, but the thing that annoys me more than anything else, like the number one most annoying thing about the internet, is every single website I go to, I need to click away some modal asking me to subscribe to their newsletter before I can read whatever I want to read. There's, and yeah. that is always a house ad. That is never a Jaguar ad or a 
Chanel ad. It's always some, you know, please, you know, give us your personally identifiable information for some reason thing. And then it says, no, I don't like fun. And you have to click that. And it's like. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Jerks. <laughs> Jerks. Okay, let's have a numbers round. I'm going to begin because I think you guys can both beat me. But I was fascinated by this one. $439,000. That is the super discount we buy in massive bulk and we paid already paid for all of your R&D per unit cost that the U.S. government pays for each of the Sidewinder missiles that we are now flying up into the air and firing at various unidentified flying objects. And I'm like... You know, whenever you see these headlines about, and we've shot another thing out of the sky, and this was in Canada, and this was somewhere, you kind of, you, you kind of wonder, like, I intuitively just think, oh, you're firing a bullet, or maybe you're firing like a missile. But how much can a missile cost? The chance, the answer is four hundred and thirty-nine thousand dollars. And if you're the, you know, Korean Air Force, they're well over a million. They're like over two million. And that's just the missile that comes out of the. Of the plane, which itself costs like half a billion or something. Exactly, that's just a single a single use missile, which will then destroy wow. itself, and you can never use it again. And they don't even know what they're shooting right now. I mean, this is according to the episode of the Daily that I Correct. listened to, where they were like, "The first one was a balloon, but the, <laughs> the second one and the third one, nobody knows what it was. It could have been some like garbage, basically, or a UFO, I guess. But no one thinks Space that junk. really. It was it was a flying Elon. <laughs> if a in Tesla doubt, it was probably with, with Elon. Wings. Um, Elizabeth, what's your number? Uh, my number is 13%, and it's the increase in reporting of stomach bugs on an app produced by Summit Health, which was, this was in a fortune piece about, uh, it's apparently norovirus season, and it's much higher than usual. And some people are attributing this to a raw oyster outbreak that can be traced to Texas. Um, but this would mostly affect Who the, the hell Southeast eats raw East. oysters from Texas? My entire family. <laughs> I, I consider if you're in the myself southeast. A, that's kind of where they come from. That's uh, you're eating a lover Gulf of oysters, raw oysters, kinda. but like, yeah. I mean, yeah, Gulf oysters have their place, and that place is fried <laughs> in a po' boy. It is not raw. Come on, people. Um, Emily, what's your number? My number is thirty-eight point five million. That is the number of streams of Rihanna music that was played the day after the Super Bowl, according to Luminate, which tracks all the big platforms of streaming. And that is compared to 12.4 million or more than three times what it was the day before the Super Bowl, which explains why someone would perform at the Super Bowl, I think, a little bit for free um, is because it's like an... Oh, she didn't get no, paid? Don't, you don't get paid for performing at the Super Bowl. Mm. Yeah, you do it because it's like, it's basically like you get a commercial for yourself, right? Like you don't have to pay the crazy rates. And, um, and not only was it, uh, she saw the payoff in the streams, but, you know, Rihanna has her makeup brand Fenty and she had all this ready to go, like Super Bowl branded makeup and some of it, I'm not, maybe all of it got sold out. So not only is she selling, you know, marketing for her music, but also for her makeup brands. And so it all kind of comes together. In in terms of celebrity musicians with fashion lines, I feel like the implosion of Kanye has really opened up a lot of white space for Rihanna to just take over the entire world. That's right. That's good analysis. Also, did we not see this week that um, Pharrell is taking over as the head menswear designer at Louis Vuitton? What do you think of that? 
I, I don't know. It's weird, right? I don't think that Pharrell is a designer. I don't think that Kanye is a designer. I don't think that Rihanna is a designer. I don't quite understand this whole move where you take musicians and you pretend that they're designers. It's but great marketing. It seems to work financially. It's marketing, yeah. It's you pure just marketing. said Louis Vuitton on Slate Money, and they didn't pay us for that. You know? <laughs> maybe, maybe the new head of the World Bank should be a multi-platinum artist who can, you know, just lead the world through sheer force of celebrity. I mean, put Rihanna who's, in charge of the world Who's the new Bank. Bono? Put put Rihanna. There you go. <laughs> put Rihanna in charge of the World Bank. I would. I think the world could get behind that one. Everyone would like that one. I like the idea. She's not a U.S. citizen, but we can make an, you know, we can just say it's Rihanna. She's she's global, man. Okay, I think that's it for Slate Money this week. We're going to have a Slate Plus where we ask all of you lovely Slate Plus folks what I should be doing to market my book, um, and especially the audio book. <laughs> um, <laughs> because, you know, crowdsource this stuff. It's a good idea. Um, otherwise, thanks for listening to Slate Money. Thanks to Anna Phillips for producing Thanks for emailing us on slatemoney at slate.com and we'll be back next week with more Slate Money. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus. You can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.